guys, this is Jessica with PT Below the Waist. I'm super excited for you guys to listen to our next episode. We interviewed Jessica Drummond back in March. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of her. We've had multiple people we've interviewed. Um, when we asked them about nutrition, they said, oh, you should, ask, you should interview Jessica Drummond. And we were like, we know. Um, and so <laughs> I was really excited and really honored that she um, agreed to be on our podcast. Jamil and I learned so, 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 so much. And it's even been interesting months later going back to, like, edit it and record it and get to listen to it again. Um, even so much so, it, it honestly, a bit of it really inspired me to take the chronic pelvic pain and functional nutrition class that she has. Um, I'm on the second module as of today, uh, and I am learning so, 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 so much. So I've really enjoyed it. It's really um, making me get out of my comfort zone of what I treat, and that's kind of professionally where I am right now as I'm trying to do things that I, you know, that are a little more outside the box, So, which is exciting. Um, but in this interview we talk about endometriosis she has a new, she has a book and at the time it was a little bit newer but so outsmart endometriosis we talk about treating pelvic pain with nutrition visceral therapy health coaching um all kinds of good tidbits are in this um just as a like side note so jamil is inter- er, is interviewing jessica with me just because we recorded this back in march before she moved back home um, so that'll be cool for you guys to listen to her again. Still moving forward, unfortunately, I'll mostly be by myself, but it was nice to, um, you know, edit this and, like, get to hang, kind of hang with Jamila again, I guess. Um, and then, as always, feel free to email us at waste at gmail.com. We're always interested in what you guys think as far as, like, comments, concerns, or future things that you want to have us talk about. I've had a few messages on Instagram, which is a great way to reach out to let me know what you think um, or what else we should talk about. And then if you can, as always, leave a review either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts. That is the way that this podcast gets heard. And, you know, the big, the point of us doing this, point of me doing this is to make people aware of pelvic floor PT and then make pelvic floor PTs aware of other things. Like, le- I want us all to, like, learn and grow and be better because of, the, because we're including pelvic floor PT in our lives, basically. Because it's something that I think that most people do need in their lives. So, if you can, give us a review. That would be great. Otherwise, enjoy this episode. Hey guys, we're super excited today. We have Jessica German, who's a pelvic floor physical therapist, and we just want to say thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we've been, you know, it's funny, your name has come up a lot in other podcasts, because we usually will ask, like, we have Susan Clinton, we have Nicole Cozy, and we'll ask nutrition questions, and they say, hmm, you know what you should do is have Jessica German on there. Yes. Yeah. We we just interviewed Amy Stein and Dr. Arbuck, and they also have you featured in their book, too, and saying that we should interview you. So we're so glad that you're here. Yes, yeah, so I feel like it's been a long time coming, so we're super excited. But yeah. go ahead, Jessica, just introduce yourself. Like, tell us, what do you do out there? Um, how long have you been a PT? How did you get into women's health? All those kinds of things. Great. So I've been a PT for, oh gosh, a long time now. Uh, I graduated from PT school in 1999. And I was originally, I was an athlete as a kid, and I originally intended to specialize in orthopedics and sports medicine. And I did do that for a couple of years out of school, a lot of manual therapy, a lot of orthopedics. And then 
I got pretty specialized pretty quickly in women's health, which from a PT standpoint, of course, is really specialized orthopedics, you know, is it's still a lot of manual therapy, um, but related to things like pregnancy and postpartum and pelvic pain and breast cancer related shoulder pain and mobilizing people's pelvises during labor and delivery. It just was kind of a specific extension of that, uh, female athletes, all of that. So, um, I did that pretty exclusively until uh, my oldest daughter was born in 2003. And after that, um, it took a couple years to really realize what happened to me, but I got really sick. And um, I had a really severe chronic fatigue and anxiety. And what I know now, based on a lot more training, uh, is that probably what happened to me was I had a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr virus, which I had had a couple times as a, as a kid in high school and college. And it really debilitated me. It crashed my hormones. And I was so sick that there was about six months where I couldn't walk to the bathroom. I couldn't take my, you know, I quit my job. I couldn't take my kid to school. Like, I was really sick. So, um, but I was also kind of a difficult patient, as we used to say at the time, in the sense that all the the treatments that my colleagues would try for me at sort of more Western-minded things, like things like antidepressants and sleep medications and all this stuff didn't help. And so I I had li- I lived in a lot of different places because my husband was a consultant, but I did a lot of my women's health work in Houston, Texas. And my a physician that I knew there, and we still actually had a house there. We actually ended up moving so I could go be near this doctor and I could quit my job and all of this stuff. We went to I went to her who was who we had you you know sent all the difficult patients too. And I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? And she's like, oh, you know, your hormones are crashed and you have to completely change your diet and your relationship to stress and all of this stuff, work, exercise. So I realized that some of these very basic tools, nutrition and sleep and lifestyle medicine and how I exercise and stress and how I work, um, really made a massive difference to my health. So it took me about two years, but I fully recovered and was healthier than I had been before. And so then I started studying functional nutrition and health coaching, which is the science of behavior change and, um, or not even the science of behavior change, more the implementation of behavior change, which I certainly had to do. I was, you know, a lot more stressed out than I realized even. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and so around 2009, I officially opened what is now known as the Integrative Women's Health Institute, where I started teaching all of this information to my colleagues because I figured if it could help my, my hormones postpartum, that a lot of our pelvic pain patients who had a plateau with just physical therapy, even great physical therapy, maybe could also benefit from bringing this approach to the clinic. So that's how I began to integrate physical therapy and pelvic health and nutrition and pelvic health and lifestyle medicine and coaching. And from the very beginning, uh, I always prioritized training my colleagues 
um, because I knew, you know, that there was no possible way I could, in the clinic, help all of these people. In fact, one of the gynecologists that I knew in Texas at the time was like, just come work for me. Why would you teach everybody else? We can have this great practice. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but there's no possible way, even if I only worked with patients with endometriosis or vulvodynia or pick one thing, you know, that's hundreds of millions of people worldwide. So, um, yeah. so I, I prioritized education and but I've I have certainly maintained a clinical practice that whole time and in the interim I got a doctorate in clinical nutrition and became a licensed nutritionist and board certified health coach so I still do a lot of teaching and writing that's the, the core of my work but we are in the process of expanding our endometriosis virtual nutrition clinic um, it's a challenging time to be doing that but we, yes. we will be doing that you know when we can well, and so the focus of the Integrative Women's Health, like, Institute, or is it, so it's it's for education, not just for providers, but also for patients, or is it focused more one way or another? It's mostly for providers, but we do see clients there as well. I have a team of quite a few health coaches now, uh, many of whom are physical therapists, Susan Clinton, uh, Susie Gronsky, Angela Dobinsky, who you guys know, yes. Um, yes. Cindy Land who's a public health nurse, uh, Melanie and Liz and, and Cindy, who, I mean, and Kathy, who all are health coaches that live all over the world, many in the U.S., some in Australia. Um, we may be expanding into Europe. We see a lot of patients in Europe already. Mm-hmm. And so we do the health coaching piece under that umbrella and then the more complex nutrition piece. At this moment, I practice uh, through a clinic in Connecticut but I still do like 95% telehealth. So we're, we're planning to transition that into kind of one more cohesive program and a larger program now that I have more people to help me serve because you know, I really only have time to see patients like a few hours a week. Um, but now we're looking to expand that and make it more cohesive and more consistent um, in integration between nutrition and, pelvic, and um, nutrition and uh, health coaching. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So that's one way, because that's kind of one of our questions is like, um, you know, because you kind of had this like event that brought you to realizing that nutrition and stress management was how to get a patient or yourself from like good to best or better to best, whatever. But for people that know that they have that missing step, you know, that's, so they would go to things like the Integrated Women's Health Institute or like what, what are ways that they can work on like bettering their knowledge, I guess. So for the practitioner or the patient? Practitioner, mm-hmm. I think that's what you were getting at, right? Yeah, the I think so. I was getting at practitioner, but I was like, oh, patient too. But yeah. <laughs> so for the practitioner, yes, the Integrated Women's Health Institute is where we teach. We have a health coaching certification that's globally recognized as the top one in women's health. Um, we offer lots of shorter CEU courses, some of which are just you know one hour long, some are months long. So it depends on how deep you want to go. Um, but yes, that's what we have in a lot of training for practitioners. We've trained thousands of practitioners in 60 plus countries. Um, so I'm really proud of that. We've done that over the course of the last, you know, 10 years or so. And then, um, for patients, I think the place to begin is honestly the book. So I wrote a book that was patient focused that we published, that was published in January. 
and it's rolling out. We actually just got picked up by a publisher, so we'll eventually be in print and bookstores and all that cool stuff in the next year, assuming that's still allowed. And then, um, <laughs> and then, um, so that book is really kind of over the years. Of doing and what's more endometriosis? Yeah, the book is called mm-hmm, the book's called Outsmart Endometriosis. You can get it right now on Amazon as an um, ebook, right? As Correct. an ebook. In okay. fact, I'll even give you a free copy if you go to outsmartendo.com. You can get a free uh, e version of that book, and. Um, that book is kind of from working with thousands of patients around the world. I started to kind of put in a systematic approach. I don't really believe in protocols because, you know, every client's different. There's not one endo diet. You know, some people have bladder issues. Some people have histamine issues. Some people have, have had surgery. Some people haven't had surgery. Some people have fertility challenges. Some people have autoimmune comorbidities. So, but it is sort of a systematic approach to physiologic system by physiologic system optimizing health for the sake of, you know, reducing and removing the symptoms of endometriosis. And would you say that that book is not even solely for patients with endometriosis, that this could apply to a lot of other patients who have pelvic pain conditions like IC or Crohn's disease or whatever yes and in fact um, my research in graduate school was um, some cases in vulvodynia and the perspective is very much the same because certainly for endometriosis and vulvodynia and bladder pain syndromes there's a lot of autoimmune overlay it's not the only thing especially in endometriosis there's a genetic underpinning there's definitely an inflammatory underpinning Um, but we have to step back and look at the interface between the digestive system and the immune system, which is where we then are able to kind of heal that. Uh, usually there's some kind of irritation in that lining, which ends up making the immune system hyper responsive, um, which is why so many people are struggling with autoimmune disease. So, you know, a lot of my patients with endometriosis, also have bladder pain syndromes. They also have vulvodynia. They also have things like chronic joint pain. You know, when I was a PT full-time, I did a lot of manual therapy and I used to have so much pain in my hands and joints. Literally like my boss bought me those like ice gloves, you know, those Mm -hmm. like soft ice packs. I changed my diet, didn't change the amount of manual therapy I was doing. My pain completely went away. So I began to understand that there was definitely this autoimmune component. While I didn't have any official autoimmune diagnoses, endometriosis, when approached from that perspective, and other pelvic pain conditions, when approached from that perspective, we really can um, significantly reduce the symptoms. Yeah. Well, so if we just like dig into it, like I don't, I don't know if there's like because I know you said there's really not like a perfect protocol, but if you are addressing just general bloating, abdominal discomfort, regardless of whether that person has endo or SIBO or whatever, is there a first step for you? Yeah. So bloating to me usually, and and, and endometriosis patients often call it endo belly, it's usually related to some kind of small intestinal bacterial or fungal over. And so if we think about it, how would bacteria start to overgrow in the small intestine? There shouldn't be too many microbes in the small intestine. So when we take in food, 
We should be chewing it. There's no teeth in your stomach, so you need to use mechanical digestion. But most people don't, right? Because we're super busy and we take three bites and then we swallow it and we're like running to the next thing. So by the time the food gets to the stomach and over time, especially if someone is chronic fatigued or has chronic pain, the, the um, stomach acid can actually be low. Or if they've been on like acid-reducing medications for a long period of time, which a lot of people have now that I've been doing this work. People are on them for 16, 20 years. They're only supposed to be on them for a maximum of 16 weeks is what they're approved for. So it's supposed to be a transitional thing, but a lot of people are on these medications for the long term. So if you haven't really chewed your food, lands in your stomach, and you don't have adequate acid, there's so much more bacteria on it than there should be. And it gets right through into the stomach. The other problem is if you have endometriosis or some other kind of structural impact to the small bowel, then you can have little pockets. Like if you had adhesions or you had an old surgery, an old bowel surgery or something, which is why visceral physical therapy can be super valuable is that you create these sort of little pockets that are perfect environments for bacteria and other microbes to thrive. So if they've come in through the stomach or the other way to get bacteria from into the small intestine is between the small and large intestine, there should be this little doorway called the ileocecal valve. But a lot of my patients, again, with endometriosis have had surgeries, which might alter that, might have taken out part of the bowel, might have taken off some endometriosis lesions from on the bowel. Um, so there should be a lot of a huge population of really healthy bacteria in the colon, but it's not supposed to creep back into the small intestine. And if that door is not functioning well, which we can help a little bit again with visceral physical therapy, with certain kinds of exercise, with um, certain supplements to support gut motility, things like that, then you end up with this perfect breeding ground where it's hard to get rid of the SIBO, SIBO or CIFO, small intestine bacterial or fungal overgrowth, because you've created such a perfect environment for it to thrive. And so a lot of patients that are bloated, that's really the key thing. It's a motility issue, it's a lack of stomach acid, and or it's more structural kinks, uh, either in the ileocecal valve or in adhesions of the small bowel. Do you think that a lot of doctors are like looking for SIBO or how are these patients able to get tested? What's like indicated for SIBO? Yes and no. I think what most GI doctors are doing are, are one of two things. They're either putting them on rifaximin, which is a local antibiotic to kind of kill off that bacteria, which is effective. It's actually a good drug. Um, it's very expensive though. So sometimes I, sometimes I prefer to use herbs because usually they're cheaper and they're just as effective. Um, but, but the problem is use that drug, fine, get rid of SIBO for a little while, then it just comes back. So you're like, well, why does it keep coming back? Where is the structural problem? Where is the stomach acid problem? You know, we have to fix the underlying problem. The other thing that most GI doctors do is just put people on a low FODMAP diet, which is not a good long-term plan. That is like, depleting someone more who's already depleted. And to me, I actually don't really like the low FODMAP diet at all. I think it's it's fine as a short-term kind of transient therapeutic diet sometimes, but I actually prefer to have people keep eating mostly normally or at least start adding back those FODMAPs 
because then the herbs, the antimicrobial herbs or the drugs, if you're going to use them, will work better because the, the bacteria aren't kind of all in hiding in various parts of the small intestine because there's essentially no food for them. So, and I just feel like it's a very depleting diet and these patients are usually already so depleted. They have, you know, eating, they're, they're kind of on the edge of eating disorders if they, if they weren't already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is rifaximin something that like, if you have a patient that has like endo or something where they have a lot of bloating that you can, that you can be like, well, go ask your doctor about rifaximin or these herbs, or is there some sort of like confirmation that you have whether it's testing or whatever before yeah you can actually do a breath test to find out more about whether or not you have SIBO there are various motility tests the SIBO breath test is only sort of moderately perfect but I I look at it in combination with the symptoms I mean I I usually don't do a lot of breath testing because if someone has endo and they have slow motility and they have low stomach acid the chances that they have SIBO are so high that why bother with a test that's sort of meh. Right. Yeah. Is that something that even though maybe if they don't have endo, but you still have bloating, they could be on like slow motility or do you feel like there's other measures before that medication or those herbs? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I still think we want to work on digestive function. So we mm-hmm. have to make sure we get the stomach acid up at the same time as we're doing the antimicrobial herbs or the rifaximin, we have to make sure the motility is good with herb, with supplements and or visceral mobilization, yoga, twisting, you know, mm-hmm. certain kinds of movement, breath work, how's their rib cage moving? Um, you know, is there any kind of adhesions around maybe an old C-section scar or something like that, another abdominal scar? Um, so to me, it's, it's all of that. We want to just work on the functioning because if we just treat the bacterial overgrowth, whether it's with herbs or with medications and you haven't fixed the underlying structure, it's just going to come back. Right. Most people take at least three rounds of antimicrobial herbs or drugs to have a more sustained improvement. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about bacterial overgrowth and I have like a question about two of my patients that I'm thinking in the top of my head who have frequent urinary tract infections and overactive bladder or bladder pain syndrome symptoms and they were doing some testing and were told that they that they had an abundance of lactobacilli in their gut and one of those uh, patients was told to get off all the probiotics that they were on. And I was just wondering, I know this is a very specific case and you don't know all the details, but what your thoughts were on that. If like patients are being told that they're having too much, I thought, I thought lactobacilli was actually a good bacteria to have in your gut. It is, but you can have too much Mm -hmm. um, because you don't want to be taking just one strain of good bacteria. There are tons and tons of strains and you want to have a diverse mix. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times if you take, just sort of commercial, um, you know, or just yogurt or just kind of the most popular commercial like probiotics that you can find at CVS. They're like one strain of Mm. lactobacillus. Now, interestingly, the bacterial environment in the vulvovaginal canal should be like primarily lactobacillus strain because it it releases... um, what is it? Hydrogen peroxide, basically. So what's great about that is if someone's having sex or they're, you know, wiped some bacteria on their vulva or whatever, that region is supposed to be super acidic. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but in the colon, we shouldn't be excessively abundant with lactobacillus. And I actually see this sometimes too on stool testing. Mm. People are just taking too much of one strain. Now, that's not going to cause a UTI, chronic UTI situation generally, but it does show that you've got an imbalance in the colon bacteria. And what it can do is those high levels of lactobacilli systemically, so in the colon, can suppress the mitochondria, and then you get more fatigue, um, more brain fog, things like that. So uh, I, I agree with that. I, I don't like a lot of excessive lactobacillus in the colon. So where I would begin with chronic UTIs, first of all, take out any and all sugar for at least four weeks. Um, and then we want to add healthy bacteria, slowly but steadily increasing to about eight to 10 servings a day of vegetables, mostly cooked or at least, you know, half and half cooked and raw because it's a lot easier to digest cooked vegetables. They'll, people will be bloated and they will have a little bit of digestive issues for the first couple weeks, um, maybe not even that long, a couple days, like four to six days, but that's okay. So we can creep it up slowly or we can just do it and be like, hey, you're going to have more digestive issues when you start eating fiber, but that's good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? It'll seem like it because they're in this transition. It's not going to last forever. Uh, but they will feel more gassy and have all these bowel movements, which they really should be having, which is great. Um, but it'll feel like a change to them. So add vegetables, completely remove sugar. If it's more of a chronic yeast issue, then I take out fruit as well. But if it's um, UTIs, that's not quite as important. Um, and then we want to add uh, resistant starches, which feed the bacteria in the small intestine. So things like cooled cooked potatoes, things like greenish bananas, really good. What did that do? You said cooled potatoes, like cooled, cooled cooked. cooked potatoes, like potato salad was a good option. Oh, well, I just thought it was <laughs> cooled. Like mm-hmm. huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, know. it changes the starches, which is a okay. great food for those the bacteria. In the large intestine. Um, there's some other great resistant starches. I'm sure. I can't remember off the top of my head, but anyway, so those couple are ones I use a lot in practice because they're easy and cheap. Um, and then um, the other thing that's great for, so then we would add good bacteria, but in a more diverse strain. And if someone's overabundant in lactobacillus strains, I lean on uh, more bifidobacterium strains. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have chronic yeast, another great strain is called Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a yeast-eating yeast. It's great. People have yeast infections, chronic yeast issues. Um, you know, I love, you know, like five times the normal dose of Saccharomyces boulardii, just that one uh, strain for a period of time. Again, all these things are therapeutic so you know we're not doing this forever mm-hmm. yeah. um, and the other great thing that works well for chronic UTIs is a supplement called D-Manos. We love D-Manos. Um, I use it all yeah. the time when I, I had a series of uh, UTIs and I would always use D-Manos and when I feel like something's coming on it would really help plus lots of water. Yeah, yeah lots of water. There's a couple other supplements we use but th- that's one of my favorites at least as a part of the program. So speaking of yeast infections um, or going back to it, what are your thoughts on boric acid and its, its effect also on helping with like beef, beef, and all that? Yeah. Boric acid suppositories that can be 
good. Yeah. Um, again, I like to balance a little higher up the chain. You know, I like to balance the whole system. So what's going on with the gut bacteria? How is the, how is the uh, stomach acid? What is the person eating? What is the bacteria like in the vulvovaginal canal? So there are two specific strains of lactobacillus. I think it's ruteri and fermentum. You can find them in a couple of supplements like Gerofemdophilus or there's one by Metagenics. I think it's Ultrafora Woman or something like that. that. Those strains are the best for treating BV and chronic yeast. There's a kind of a Chinese medicine tool that I use sometimes too called Yin Care, which you can soak a tampon in and you know insert vaginally. So there's lots of things we can do to sort of gently rebalance the flora in the vulvovaginal canal, but it has to start with like, why is the flora off rather than just like kill off all the bad stuff, right? That's the Western medicine approach. Whether you're used to, whether you're using, you know, supplements or drugs, why though is the question I'm always asking. Is there chronic stress? What is this person eating? How is their sleep? How is their relationship? What is their partner eating? Is, are they passing it back and forth all the time? You know, we want to get really holistic and take a wide view about why this would be continuing to happen if it's more of a chronic situation. Yeah, there's just so many things that sounds like that we that you can really attack, like stress and sleep and, you know, your diet and digestion and yeah, I think that's probably, like, especially because I think a lot of people that listen to this are also, like, PT students, and almost, like, what to tackle first can seem so challenging, but, and that's almost, like, not really a question, just, like, this comment that I have, it's, like, even myself, I'm, like, whoa, that's a lot, but it's, it's really cool to just, I think, um, for people to know that there's so many, like, options out there of things that you can address. Yeah, I think it's empowering to know that there are a lot of needle movers, and the primary ones like the biggest needle mover for each patient is going to be different. And here's how you're going to kind of know where to start. First, just really listen to the story. You know, what is going on in that person's life? What is their core stressor? We have to go back to figuring out what that is. And even if we can't change it, like they're right in the middle of a divorce or they had a history of sexual abuse or whatever, you know, they're having financial difficulties, something like that. People, when they're carrying around that heavy stress, but they know that you're going to help them rebuild their physical resilience. And over time, they're going to have more and more tools to be able to unwind that stress. Then there's a safety sensation in the nervous system that communicates very directly with the immune system. So we hear a lot about mind-body medicine, right? So, you know, doing your breath work and your grounding and your meditation and all of that is honestly invaluable. Um, but sometimes it's hard to do that when you're just feeling physically not good, right? Yeah. So I approach it with, if those things feel really hard and you can't sleep and you're waking up in the middle of the night and your hormones are all crazy, Let's start with what's easier to control. Let go of sugar, start to learn to cook, and add food. Eat more vegetables, eat more oregano, eat more garlic, eat more rosemary, eat more cinnamon. Like There are lots of things that are like culinary therapeutic foods. Mm -hmm. um, 
that if we focus on adding those instead of depleting the system to try to kill off the pathogen, but instead build resilience in the host, the person, the human, right? Um, then you're creating a body where this kind of stuff can't really thrive because it's it's like so healthy. You know, right now there's a lot of conversation obviously about the coronavirus and with any virus, that, that virus needs to sort of hijack our system. And the more resilient the system is, the more difficult that's going to be for the virus. So it'll move to a easier host. These bugs are really sophisticated. And if you're an easy host, you know, for chronic yeast for whatever reason or chronic BV or whatever, um, it's, it's going to keep coming back because we have to, it's unfortunate, but these bacteria are supposed to be living sort of symbiotic with us, symbiotically with us, mm -hmm. bacteria and other microbes. Um, but actually they don't, they really kind of take advantage of us when we're weak. So um, think about body-mind medicine. If mind-body medicine feels too overwhelming and think of it in terms of how can we build up this system? What's the easiest way for this particular client to start? Is it a daily nature walk? Is it uh, going to bed earlier? Is it turning off blue light? Is it adding vegetables? You know, and start with what's easiest, then behaviorally people will be able to build on that. Yeah. Well, that's much more motivating here to add stuff than rather keep continually telling patients to take things away. So I like how you phrase that. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, I always think that health coaching seems like that. Like, it's all very positive, which I think is, um, oh, well, that's what, how you build, like, a lifestyle, right? Like, a lifestyle change and things like that. That's really cool. So, I guess if, because I know we have a lot of questions on here that are, like, well, to at least us that are kind of technical, you may be like, ah, whatever. <laughs> but, um, as far as, like, we have questions about, like, how do you optimize, like, a gut microbiome for, like, improved digestion? And, like, with that, I also want, as you mentioned earlier, like, how do you increase, like, stomach acid? Like, how, how do you do those things? Just, like, I know you don't, you cannot, like, tell us all this perfect, like, how everyone does it. But what are those little, like, steps? Little snaps? Yeah, so chewing is invaluable. Here's a game you can play with yourself and your family and your kids tonight. When you take a bite of food, the ideal number of times to chew it is 40. There's research on that. Nobody does that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a game to play tonight. So I just work on, you know, they're doing five, let's do eight, you know, like just creep it up, right? Yeah. Stomach acid, I mean, I can't tell you how important this is. It's huge. I have so many patients who have chronic anxiety because they don't have enough amino acids. They can't build neurotransmitters in their brain. They're, you know, they can't kill off the bacteria in their gut. Like we are all depleted of stomach acid. So um, the fastest way to do this in the book, I detail what's known as the betaine challenge. You use a supplement that, uh, and there are a couple of contraindications to this, so definitely read the book before you just try it. But basically, there's this supplemental stomach acid, and you start with a very low dose. It's kind of like taking digestive enzymes, and there are some that are combined with digestive enzymes, and you slowly creep it up. And eventually, if you feel some heartburn, then you've taken too much, so you back it down. Um, there are other more complex tests you can do. There's little cameras you can swallow and things like that. But clinically, 
um, the betaine challenge is what I use for mm-hmm. looking at stomach acid. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people can't tolerate that or they're for some reason they can't do the betaine challenge, there are simpler things we can do like diluted apple cider vinegar, Mumbashi um, plums, um, uh, bitters is another good mm-hmm. one. Um, and then to, you said the other question was like, how do we optimize the gut microbiome? Mm-hmm. Well, again, like that's, that's, a like, question. that's yeah. like a billion dollar question. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, the entire, <laughs> but <laughs> the biggest problem is we don't really know what the optimal gut microbiome is. And it's probably variable across humans. So what we, what we do know is good is a lot of diversity we do know certain strains that we don't want to be overabundant, and we do want some strains that are plenty and abundant. So we want this kind of nice balance between pro and more pathogenic bacteria or commensal bacteria and problematic bacteria. If you have some problematic bacteria in your colon, that's perfectly normal. But you know you don't want it to get too much. Um, and the same thing, you don't want to like weigh tons of you know uh, lactobacillus even. Right. So. Taking probiotic supplements is a little bit like, you know, dropping water in an ocean, you know, drops of water in an ocean. It's, it's a small amount. You can get up to therapeutic doses of like 100, 200 billion CFUs. And I, that's a fine thing to do, but it's still like just a bridge to getting optimal gut bacteria. The way to get optimal gut bacteria is to create a good environment in the colon where good bacteria can thrive. So I like to think of it more like soil and having plants grow, right? So you want to have lots of fiber. That's where the eight to 12 servings of vegetables come in, eight to 10 servings of vegetables. Not too much stress because stress and elevated cortisol, which is a stress buffering hormone, can alter the gut microbiome. Um, Not over intensely exercising, not, not exercising at all. Um, not having, you know, diabetes and, and blood sugar instability. Um, so really it's about creating a system where it's easier for the healthier bacteria to thrive and then adding in uh, probiotic foods, sauerkraut. It's like my favorite, you know, right now while we're trying to all build resilience, like eat sauerkraut, drink the juice, like that stuff's great. Kimchi, um, mm-hmm. fermented beets, they have all that stuff in Austin, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, I had kimchi the other day, it was delicious. That's right, kimchi, um, you know, water kefir and coconut milk kefir and things like that, even date fermented dairy, depending on someone's sensitivity. So to like, create the like optimal, like, I don't know, I don't really use the word optimal because we don't know what that is, but does that mean like an elimination diet first and then adding in all the diverse probiotics or well really adding in all that diverse fiber and things like that regardless yeah it kind of depends like you it depends on sort of what a person needs and what they're willing to do so as a basic elimination diet just to take the pressure off the digestive and immune system would be to eat basically only high quality proteins If you're dealing with some of these chronic pain conditions, chronic pelvic pain conditions, the skeleton that I use would be like an autoimmune paleo diet. So 
Animal proteins are generally preferred over plant proteins because there can be in some immune response to things like beans and legumes, other legumes. That's interesting because um, there's a big plant-based diet like phase right fad right now too. So are you suggesting that we get more protein from animals than plant-based proteins? Correct, at least initially, while we're trying to shift the quiet the immune system. Okay. Um, I do believe you should still eat mostly plants, though. Um, it's sh- it's just that those plants should mostly be vegetables, um, and maybe things like quinoa. You know, a few gluten free whole grains. Some people are more sensitive than others to grains, but like whole grains versus processed grains. Even you know, beans are kind of better than. Um, I don't know, like we don't want to do a lot of peanuts. Nuts and seeds are a little tricky. Peanuts are legumes, but all the other nuts and seeds, usually I find are fine for this population, but some people with more autoimmune comorbidities do struggle with that. And the only vegetables that I'm, I will potentially eliminate, at least in the short term, is the nightshade vegetables, so things like tomatoes and eggplant. Are eggs in the, can you eat that on AIP diet, eggs? Yeah, I think so. You can? Okay. And most of my patients, yeah, most of my patients tolerate eggs. Fish is great. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't have to be eating, like, it's not the all bacon diet, like people think of (laughs) paleo and, you know, it's like all bacon all the time, but no, Uh it's really just not so getting rid of like everyone. So if you're eating this, let's just start here. Sugar, any other sweeteners really, processed grains. So like a lot of the breads and pastas and things like that. And um, that's really it. Even if you just take out just those three things, you're gonna really take a lot of pressure off your Mm -hmm. immune system. So, but whole grains and beans and the nightshades is sort of person to person where we would test it. Um, now, if someone is a committed vegan, which I have worked with those kinds of patients, mm-hmm. um, it is more challenging for sure. I find it really difficult for to get rid of everything because a lot of times they'll struggle with oxalate sensitivities or histamine sensitivities. So we can maybe kind of kind of balance the blood sugar. But to do so, we have to have so many oxalates in the diet that then there's bladder pain. So it's tricky. But even a vegetarian who can have like some eggs or a little bit of fish um, will do better. So it's not like you have to be eating all meat all the time, but it's just challenging to get enough protein that's non-irritating because soy is usually a problem. Beans and certain whole grains can be a problem. It's just hard to get enough protein in. Um, but it's not impossible. So we can do it. I just find it more challenging because you're eating so many vegetables to keep the blood sugar balance, which is great, but then overdoing that can sometimes lead to an oxalate issue. Hmm. I just have a good quick question. This is like not on the list. This is more, I am a huge fan of the whole 30. Like Melissa Hartwig is like my like role model. <laughs> I just love her to death. But so because a lot of what you just said is the whole 30, but it's so very strict. But but it is kind of like a short term, like it's a four week, 30 day diet. Like, I don't know. Do you think that's like a bad idea? It's too restricting? Because we did talk about how it's bad to deplete people like that. So I guess it's Yeah. Really- and I think the problem is people think of 
paleo diets or whatever, but that's not paleo diet, Whole30, yeah. as being so restrictive. And I think there needs to be a mindset shift. I mean, personally, I've been on more or less paleo diet for like, gosh, like 12 years now. You know, I do eat some whole grains. I do eat beans. Um, but like... The last time I've had like anyone's birthday cake or anything, I, I literally don't even remember. <laughs> like, right. yeah. like you know, life, is, life is still good. <laughs> you get used to it. Yeah. And the thing is, is I think people need to relearn how to cook a little bit. Um, and it's not yes. to say I don't eat like delicious, you know, treat like things from time to time. That's not true. Um, but because you can do a lot of that with like almond flour now, but you just don't need it as much. Like you're not craving it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Yes, I think there's a couple different reasons, like the whole 30 or autoimmune paleo as a therapeutic diet and and a therapeutic elimination diet. I would always do that for about four weeks because that's how long it takes to quiet the immune response. Then we'll know when we start to rechallenge. So let's say you do a whole 30, then week five, you add beans. You have like three or four servings of beans every day for the first three to four days of the week. And all of a sudden you're bloated again and your pain all comes back. Well, it's the beans. Mm-hmm. So stop eating that. <laughs> or sometimes cook them differently. You know, that can be an issue. Um, or sometimes you can just have one serving a week. You know, like that kind yeah. of thing. It can be. It can be that your immune system can tolerate a little bit of stress, mm-hmm. but just not that much. It's just helpful to kind of flood it a little bit when you're testing so that people can really feel the difference. And usually in my experience, what happens is people are like eating really clean and then they go to a birthday party or a wedding or something and they eat cake and drink alcohol (laughs) and they wake up feeling like crap. And then they're like, Oh yeah, something there didn't sit with me well. So one way or another, you're going to test it. If you test it systematically, then you know better. Now, the reason I don't like the low FODMAP diet, but I'm kind of okay with something like more of a paleo or autoimmune is I feel like the low FODMAP diet restricts so many healthy foods. Mm-hmm. Whereas an autoimmune paleo or paleo diet, there's so many nourishing foods you can use on that diet. And so if people just learn how to cook more creatively or more consistently, it's not hard to get full nutrition. And then some people, as your system gets more and more resilient, you can often add in some grains, add in some beans, add in more nuts and seeds like the body gets more and more healed and you can expand into a more kind of kind of on the edge of like mediterranean and paleo Mm -hmm. which i think is great and again there are people there's there are genetic variabilities too there are people who do even better on sort of a you know if we kind of think of mediterranean diet in the middle as sort of a good optimal clean diet some people genetically and with blood sugar instability and with autoimmune issues do better leaning towards the paleo side of that, of the Mediterranean diet, but they maybe can tolerate some beans, some nut, more nuts, more grains, maybe even some dairy like butter. Um, other people lean more, do better with the more fully plant-based version of that, where they may not be eating any animal protein or they're eating little, like just some eggs or a little fish. So there's definitely a range, um, and it just kind of depends on what different things people are presenting with. So if it's, if it's a lot of really nourishing, healthy food, I don't think of that as restrictive. You know, if I say, like, you, you know, we really shouldn't be eating, like, 
Coca-Cola and talk to cookies. Like to me, that's not restrictive. But I can see how for some people initially it can feel restrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we work on the behavioral Okay, so you mentioned... Oh, go ahead. That's okay. I have a question. So going back to, like, stomach acid and just making sure we just have good, like, acidity to break down our foods, I just thought of a question about how a lot of our patients... I have, like, a special interest in, like, bladder pain syndrome and issues like that, and I have some patients who are just uh, restricting themselves to drinking alkaline water, and I was wondering if, like, that really has an effect on pH levels and pain, and what are your thoughts on that? I have not found that to make a huge difference. I actually think oftentimes they don't have enough good stomach acidity right Mm -hmm. in the stomach. That actually helps with overall alkalization because you can eat more plants, really. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, if they feel like it's helping, I have no, there's nothing against that. But I, I haven't seen anything especially useful about doing a lot of alkaline water. I think leaning alkaline in the sense that having a lot of vegetables is a generally good thing. Okay. Um, but depending on digestion, how much raw, and depending on how much oxalate sensitivity, how much we can do at once varies. Okay, well, it's my turn. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about foods that are like um, – like healthy but may not be good for a certain patient and one of the questions I think I literally got this from like an email that y'all send out now I get those but it was like talking about green vegetables like crucifers which are good for you like they're healthy but with women with endo they're particularly helpful because they like metabolize excess estrogen so like what's I just like wonder why that is like why does that happen and can you give examples of like some crucifers yeah exactly yeah Yeah, cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, um, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower. Mm. So there are metabolites of those vegetables that support liver metabolism of estrogen. And there are two kinds of estrogen. There's endogenous and exogenous. So your endogenous estrogen is the kind of estrogen you create yourself. And we want the liver mostly metabolized with that. Then you pee it out. Um, other estrogens that we're exposed to more in the environment, like plastics and from drinking tap water and stuff like that, or if you take birth control or if you take hormone replacement, mm-hmm. um, that is more metabolized in the colon. So that's where having good gut, mi- gut microbiome is important. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, cruciferous vegetables are good for both because the metabolites support the liver and the fiber supports the gut. So, so since we have a lot of patients who have pelvic pain, vulvodynia, and then they do demonstrate some vulvar atrophy, is your first thing to recommend to them topical estrogens or do you try some natural, natural estrogen remedies first before going straight to medication? Well, I'm not opposed to topical estrogen. I think that can be a useful tool. Um, it depends, again, though, on, like, why, you know? Are they 85? Well you know, that makes sense. You're supposed to be relatively depleted of estrogen. Are they 42? Hmm. Why? You know? So if someone is in their 20s, 30s, 40s with estrogen depletion, I'm looking at, are you on hormonal birth control? Because that's estrogen depleting. So maybe that's not the best birth control for you. Um, The other thing, well, postpartum can be a time. So can perimenopause. 
But there are other sources of estrogen for people who are premenopausal, actually even postmenopausal. Your postmenopausal source of estrogen is actually your adrenal glands primarily and a little bit abdominal belly fat, which is why I'm not 100% opposed to postmenopausal women having a little bit of abdominal fat. Mm. Um, because I think in this country, we really overemphasize being super, super, super thin and lean, even in perimenopause and menopause, such that it's actually, I think, starting to be a problem. I think we're actually kind of being too lean there. But assuming someone's not like super, super lean or over-exercising or hyper-bodybuilding or something like that, Usually the issue is that they're kind of sliding into menopause exhausted. Um, they're, they've been under a lot of stress for a long time. They're not sleeping well. Um, they're not nourishing well. And so as we rebuild the resilience and the stress resilience system, then it makes it a heck of a lot easier to transition through menopause and still have enough estrogen. Um, other supplements I like at that time, I love maca. Um, I don't use it a lot for people with endometriosis because it can actually be sort of too stimulating and can increase the pain. But for someone in perimenopause or with vulvovaginal atrophy, any, you know, anywhere over 40 or even in your mid thirties, if there's no other reason, I love, you know, lots more fat, eat tons of fat, like 35, 40% fat if you want to avocado a day you know coconut oil olive oil olives nuts seeds salmon you know all these really beneficial fats fish oil is good and then um maca can be really good um like and then i yeah it's you can it's just like a powder you can add oh, to your smoothies it's actually a root vegetable from peru that's ground up oh okay um it's very nourishing, helps a lot with libido in men and women in their middle years. Mm. Um, so that's a good option. What was I going to say about that? Oh, and there are some vaginal moisturizers that I like if people do well with those. Sometimes they don't need the actual topical estrogen. Um, and depending on their history, that might be better. So uh, infinite, uh, sorry, Intimate Rose, who is developed by a physical therapist. Yes, we interviewed her. Oh, she's great. Yeah. Um, I also really love Rosebud Woman. Uh, it's a little bit different texture, so just kind of depending on which texture you like. Um, I like Coenjolva, which is kind of a DHEA, a little bit of DHEA, and otherwise just more of like a daily moisturizer. And I did an interview with Dr. Anthony Becker, who developed that on our Facebook page. I'm sure you can scroll back a while and see. Because for vulvodynia, that works really well, too. And if it's too much at first, you can kind of like start by putting it on the outer inner thigh and then kind of creeping it closer to the vulva. So Jessica, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and for you answering all our questions. We've learned so much. Is there anything you want to tell our listeners and that can include any last minute advice for future PTs or PTs wanting to also get into nutrition as well as just how um, they can learn, find you in terms of your social media and any classes, webinars that you're going to be teaching? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. Um, you guys can find me at integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. That's where we have all of our professional training courses. We have 
master classes on endometriosis. We have deeper dive courses on functional nutrition for chronic pelvic pain. We have coaching certifications. We have a little membership site where you can join and learn little one hour courses if you just want to dig in a little bit at a time. And you can get the book, as I said, Outsmart Endometriosis is available now on Amazon, or you can download a free copy and also share it with your colleagues and your patients at outsmartendo.com. Do you do social media, like on a, you know, um, professional sense? Do you want to shout that out to you? Yeah, you can find us most at uh, Instagram at Integrative Women's Health. We're also on Facebook at the Integrative Women's Health Institute. And we have a couple of free Facebook groups, uh, Endometriosis Nutrition, Fertility, Pregnancy, and Postpartum Nutrition, and Menopause Nutrition, where we talk all about like different recipes and, you know, how different foods are good for you. And we really try to take that very positive approach to adding foods rather than being very restrictive. That's awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you again so much for being here today. We really learned a lot talking to you. We appreciate like your time and stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget the material and content within this podcast is general information being discussed between two physical therapists and not meant to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Again, we would love to hear what you guys think, so please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send comments or questions to ptbelowthewaist at gmail.com. And don't forget to check back in a few weeks for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss how pelvic floor PT can address bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction.